of that. We, we stand in his victory, don't we, today? What an awesome thought. With wars and all kinds of things going on around us, what a comforting thought to know that we stand in his victory if you're in Christ Jesus. Please turn with me to John chapter 5, and we'll be beginning with verse 31. One of the best ways to validate the truthfulness of someone's claim is through witnesses, right? That happens all the time in the court of law, right? Um, how foundationally helpful is it for your case if you have a witness that doesn't witness against you but for you, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, Jesus has made some great claims, hasn't he? Jesus has made the claim of all claims. He has claimed to be equal with God. There is no higher claim than that. And let, let me remind you how this came about. Remember, Jesus healed a crippled man. And he told him to carry his mat and walk home. <laughs> and the Jews were angry at him because he presumed to have authority to break their Sabbath rules. Remember, they created rules to go around the rules in order to keep the rules. And so Jesus was assuming authority to be able to break their rules, and they were angry at him for that. They did not think Jesus had such authority. And so Jesus has been defending himself, explaining how he has the right to do such things. What gives him the right to do such things? And really, Jesus isn't defending himself. We have to make that clear. He's not really defending himself. It is an opportunity for him to declare who he is. He has no need to defend himself. He's declaring his great identity. Now I want to stop again and remind us of the significance of the claims that Jesus is making. We need to continually stop and remind ourselves of what this means. Everything about Jesus stands or falls on his identity. Is Jesus God with us? All of our hope lies in the fact that Jesus is who we claim to be. We have no hope if he is not who we claim to be. So this is the big question. Is Jesus truly God with us? There's nothing more important than knowing who Jesus is. So today we're going to continue to listen as Jesus continues to support his claim that he is God. And he does this by bringing up various witnesses. He brings up, you might say, witnesses to the stand. And they are going to bear witness. And in fact, they are already bearing witness to who he is. Now, I do want to make one disclaimer here to make it very clear that these witnesses differ from a witness in a court of a law in one significant way that we need to understand. You see, they exist not in order to validate Jesus, but rather for your sake 
A witness is there to validate the witness, the, the, the person accused, right? But Jesus is not being witnessed to in order to validate who he is. As I just mentioned, they're not defending him. Rather, the witnesses are here for your sake. These witnesses are bearing witness to who Jesus is for your sake, for your salvation, that you might believe and be saved. You know, Jesus doesn't need witnesses. He doesn't need anyone to confirm who he is. Rather, these witnesses are for your sake. But there's another side to these witnesses we'll look up next week. Next week, we're going to look at verses 41 through 47 and go back and review a few things that will help us to understand better how witnesses also will bring greater condemnation to those who refuse to listen to them. So witnesses are bearing testimony to who Jesus is so that you will be saved. But those who refuse to listen to the witnesses will bear even greater condemnation. And so Jesus will show us next week what the refusal of the Jewish leadership to respond properly to his witness reveals about the condition of their hearts. Their refusal to listen to the witnesses is going to reveal the wickedness and unbelief within the hearts of the religious leaders. And Jesus is going to expose that. And you know what? There's nothing better than when Jesus exposes our wickedness. We need to have our wickedness exposed. Otherwise, we will never be saved. But we will spend more time on that next week. Today, we're going to look at these four witnesses that Jesus brings to the stand and marvel at God's grace. We're going to marvel at the grace of God that he has left us an abundant testimony to who he is. We must never take for granted the grace of God and what he has left for us to bear witness to who he is so that we, must be, we might be saved. So who are these witnesses that validate the testi and testify to the fullness of Jesus' identity? Well, the first witness is the Father. And we see the Father's witness in verses 31 through 32 and verses 36 through 38. And I'm just going to read verses 31 through 32 here. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, why do I say that the Father is bearing witness in verse 31 through 32 there, when the Father's name is not mentioned at all? And in fact, it moves right on to John the Baptist right afterwards, doesn't it? And so I say this because in verse 31 through 32, the another who bears witness about me is almost certainly referring to the Father. And he is mentioned subsequently throughout the next verses. So the another who bears witness about Jesus is Jesus saying that I have another who bears witness about me and that is my Father. And then the Father is mentioned in verse 36 and 37 and alluded to in verse 38. 
And I think the reason that the Father is brought up first here is because the Father is the one who planned, who designed, who orchestrates, who's behind all of the witness of his Son. You could actually accurately say then that he is the one, the another, who bears witness of Jesus, and you'd be entirely true just to say that the Father is the one who bears witness about him. Because I think that is in fact true. He's behind all of it. All of it comes from him. He orchestrates it all. And so verse 31 might sound a little odd at first, right? As if Jesus was saying, if I were to bear witness about myself alone, my witness is not valid. As if his witness was not valid in itself, right? That's kind of what it sounds like, doesn't it? As if he's saying, don't take my word for it. (laughs) But that's not at all what he's saying here. What Jesus is saying here is based on what he has already spoken of throughout the last few verses, number of verses. He is saying that he only does the will of the Father. And so there's a sense that when whatever he does, the Father is bearing witness through him. And so everything he's saying now is based on his previous argument. That the Father is continually bearing witness of him. And so the Father is the other who bears witness to the, with the Son to his identity. Jesus made it clear he only does and says what the Father wants him to do and say. This is kind of what he meant when he said, my father is working and I am working. And so his witness is therefore not only his witness, but the father's witness as well. You know, it's kind of like if you go to sign a document and you need a witness to bear witness that you did sign the document, right? Something like that. And then you can't be the one who bears witness that you signed the document, can you? You can't say, I'm going to bear witness to the fact I signed that document. There must be someone else who bears witness. And he is the Father. And in verse 31, 36, 37, and 38, we see that the Father is the one who is orchestrating the entirety of the witness of the Son. In verse 36, we see that all his works are the works of the Father. Verse 36. In verse 38, we see that all his words are the words of the Father. So the Father is behind in orchestrating all of this. And then in verse 37 confirms that this is the case when it says, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. In other words, the Father is using means to bear witness of the Son. You have not seen Him, you have not heard His voice. He has not appeared to them in bodily form. Rather, He bears witness through His appointed instrument and His means, such as John the Baptist and supremely through Jesus and his works and his words. In verse 32, Jesus confirms that the Father's testimony that he gives of his Son is true. It is as if he puts a seal of of, of approval on on the witness of his Father. And isn't it comforting today to know that Jesus, we have a witness to Jesus that is true and accurate for all of our hope lies in him. And it should bring great comfort to your soul to know that we have everything we need as a witness to the Son, that he is God with us. And that we can rest assured in his identity. The second witness is John the Baptist, verses 33 through 35. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So why does Jesus bring John the Baptist up as a witness? And that's a ridiculous question, (laughs) because that's exactly, as we all know, who've been here from the very beginning of John, that's exactly what John the Baptist came to do. That was his entire purpose for his existence, to bear witness to Jesus. And that's exactly what he did, wasn't it? And Jesus makes it clear what his motivation for bringing up John is not. (laughs) There is a motivation that he does not have for bringing up John as a witness. His motivation is not for his own sake, as if he needed the validation. We've already said this, but I'm bringing it up again because it's really important we understand it. He says, I don't need John's testimony. I don't need anyone's testimony. I'm not saying this for my own sake. This isn't for my good. Jesus does not need anyone's validation about who he is. He has a different motivation for bringing up John. He says, rather, that he is bringing up John's witness for their sakes, so that they might be saved. The only way anyone will ever be saved is if they know who Jesus is and they trust in him alone as their Savior. And based on the work, the finished work he did on the cross, that's the only way anyone will ever be saved from the wrath of God. That's the only way anyone's sins will ever be be taken care of. That's the only way anyone will ever um, be, be, be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So he does this for their sakes. This is exactly what we're told is John's purpose in John 1 verse 7. And this should bring us back. And what a great, um, what a great reminder of what John is all about that summarizes what we just looked at. He came as a witness, right? To bear witness about the light. And the question is why? That all might believe through him. So Jesus gives his own evaluation of John's ministry. How does Jesus evaluate the ministry of John? What does he think about the ministry of John? Well, this is how he describes his ministry. He was a burning and shining lamp. Aren't those words that you want to hear from Jesus about you? (laughs) He was a burning and shining lamp. I don't think there's any greater words that can ever be said of anyone than what Jesus says of John the Baptist. A lamp provides guidance and direction. It is not the destination. It points to somewhere else. And John was such a lamp. He was a light bearer and he shined brightly. Now he was not the true light, was he? He was merely a lamp that burned and gave light to that true light, that pointed to that true light. And so John's witness was a derived witness and he was pointing to a higher source. John 3, verse 30 kind of summarizes what John was all about. He must increase, but I must decrease. I love those words. Aren't those incredible words? Oh, that we would have that heart and that understanding. He must increase, I must decrease. Which is the very opposite of the way the world thinks, isn't it? And so he burned for a time, and as all lamps do, eventually his lamp died out. But for that time, he was a burning and shining lamp. So his witness, John's witness, should be a model in many ways for our witness and what our witness should look like. We should be witnesses to Christ as John was a witness to Christ. 
We should be such a burning light to the world around us and our witness for Christ. Our zeal for Christ, our love for Christ should be evident in our lives. Our lives should be saying to the world, he must increase, I must decrease. And when that is the case, we will be shining brightly to the world. We should look like lamps for Christ that are burning, showing the way to Christ. I wonder if that is the way you are known today. I wonder if that is true of you. I wonder if you and I are burning lights, as John was. Some of the greatest examples of burning brightly for Christ have come through times of persecution and great tribulation throughout history. On October 16, 1555, at a time when persecution was breaking out in England, Bishop Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley literally burned brightly for Christ. The two men were tied to the stake for their refusal to abandon the gospel. And we were told that Hugh Latimer, turning to his comrade Nicholas Ridley, called out before the people, listen to these words, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And then they were burned at the stake. And amazingly, that light is still burning today, isn't it? As we continue to proclaim their testimony of Christ to the world. This is especially the case right now for believers who have chosen to remain in the Ukraine. We should pray for them that they would continue to burn brightly. They are part of our body, aren't they? They are members of our body, and as they suffer, we suffer. So we should pray for them and care for them. One pastor in Ukraine who decided to remain wrote these words, We have decided to stay both as a family and as a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kyiv will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. In other words, they chose to remain a light in the Ukraine. The third witness are the works that he accomplished in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, when he says there's a greater testimony than John's, he's not degrading or belittling John's testimony, is he? He has already said that John's testimony is a burning bright light. He couldn't have said a greater compliment to John and his testimony. But what he's saying here is he's amplifying this greater testimony. He's saying there is a greater testimony than even John that I have. And the superior witness are the signs, the works, the miracles that Jesus accomplished. And these miracles were designed to reveal the identity of who Christ is, to point to his deity. Now Nicodemus acknowledged that the only explanation for Jesus' works was that he was from God in John 3, verse 2. He didn't go far enough, but he was kind of going in the right direction. Rabbi, he said, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. You see, he says there's no natural explanation for what you are doing. The only explanation is that God is with you. And he could understand that. He could get that. The crowds recognized this as well and went even further than Nicodemus in their explanation for what these miracles signified in John 7, verse 31. And they asked this question. When the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? Right? They understood 
They said, if he acts like the Messiah, if he looks like the Messiah, if he does things like the Messiah, he must be the Messiah, <laughs> right? It's kind of an ob obvious conclusion there. It's the only logical conclusion we can come to. And this was the very purpose of the signs. They were intended to show who he was. You see, when Jesus healed someone, he did have compassion on them. He did care about their condition they were in, certainly did. But he had a greater purpose than healing them of their condition. Jesus had a greater purpose than wowing people, right? Than, than demonstrating some fireworks and showing them how great he was. Rather, the greater purpose was to show who he was as divine, that he was God with us. They are pointing people to a right understanding of God so that you might believe and be saved. Peter confirms that this was the greater purpose in Acts 2, verse 22. He says that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. God attested him to you through these things. That's what he's saying there. He made his identity known to you through those signs that he performed. What is the greatest of these works? What is the greatest of these miracles? What is the greatest sign he performed of all? What confirms who Jesus is greater than all other things? And the answer is the resurrection from the dead. Nowhere else is the identity of Jesus so fully demonstrated and confirmed as the resurrection. His resurrection was a declaration to the world that he is Lord and that he is God. We read this in Romans 1 verse 4 about Jesus. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Thomas said what he did in John 20 verse 20. Remember he, he touched his hands and his feet and what was his reply when he realized that Jesus was raised from the dead? What was his reply? My Lord and my God. <laughs> he couldn't do otherwise. If he understood what this meant, there was no other explanation for it. He was Lord and he was God. We should find Great comfort in all his works, especially in the resurrection, as they constantly remind us of who he is. It should cause us to respond with Thomas, my Lord and my God, when we see him. For the resurrection proves beyond any doubt that Jesus is who he claimed to be. It is the Father's seal of approval on who Jesus is. The fourth witness are the words of scriptures themselves. Verse 39 reads like this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, the witness, the, the, the scriptures that Jesus is saying that bear witness to him is the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus says that the entirety of scriptures bear witness about me. Imagine that. The, the, the entirety of scriptures are a witness to Jesus Christ. In other words, the very point of all scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, have one point. They have one main agenda, and that is to point to Christ and to reveal who he is. That's the one point of the entirety of scriptures. 
They point to Christ. Jesus made a similar point on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 25 through 27. Jesus had just risen from the dead and he's walking around incognito, right? Um, he, they don't know who he is, but he joins up with these two, um, two people walking to, the, to Emmaus. And as they're walking, they explain the current events to Jesus <laughs> as if he didn't know. And, uh, and this is his response. He says to them, O foolish ones, <laughs> and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus said, all the scriptures point to me. I'm what they're all about. The message is me. Wouldn't it have been great to have been there? To hear what Jesus had to say? So how do scriptures bear witness about Jesus? Well, first of all, they bear witness that we need a Savior. Uh, for example, let me just give you one example, and I want to bring up the genealogies that go on and on and on and on. And some of them say, and they died, and they died, and they died. And we're like, okay, I get it. Everyone dies. <laughs> but isn't that the point? The point is to express the absurdity of our lives, that we are helpless, that we're all dying, that we need a Savior. And if you don't get it, there's something wrong with you. You're missing the whole point. Those genealogies are incredible. They're so important that we get the point that everyone dies. After the 100th he died, you should get the point. Man is hopelessly lost. He needs a Savior. And there are no exceptions from the greatest to the worst of men. If you can even call them that, everybody needs a savior, and everyone is hopelessly lost. And that's, if you can read scriptures and get anything other than that, then you are not reading the scriptures rightly. <laughs> the scriptures are not flattering to people. They just do not flatter people. Scriptures also tell us who Christ is and that he's coming. The examples of this would be prophecy, types, revelatory events, and the law, by the way, is a great example of this. Paul says that the law was never able to give life in Romans 7, verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, right? It couldn't bring life. The law could not do that. And if you try to do that, you're going to find it to be futile. It cannot bring life. The law has no power. And the failure was not the failure in the law. Don't blame the law, but the sinfulness of the human race. Galatians 3 verse 21 tells us that. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Right? The law could not give life. Its purpose was to show us that we need Jesus we need him to deliver us, right? And it exposed our wickedness and our inability to come to God on his terms. The law was rather to point us outside ourselves to Christ as the one who could save. The law, the law points us to Jesus for justification, according to Romans 10, verse 4. Listen to what it says here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the point, isn't it? It's pointing to Christ. 
He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But that's not it, is it? That's not all. That's not the end here. The law also points us back to Christ for power to live according to his will after salvation. The law reminds us that we need Christ. We need to live by faith continuously. The same way we're saved is the same way we continue to live for Christ, by his power and his strength. Someone said it this way in a blog I read this week. The law will lead you to Christ by showing you that you need both his forgiveness for breaking his law in the past and his strength to fulfill the law in the future. In the eyes of the world, the value of everything is based on what it says about me, isn't it? We value things for what it says about me and how it flatters me and how it makes me feel good about me. Therefore, scriptures will always look boring and uninteresting to the world because it's not about you and me. There's really no point to it if it is about Christ in the perspective of the world. But this is exactly the very thing that makes the scripture so valuable to believers, isn't it? There's only one great value in being pointed to the one who can save. There is the only place where value can be found. You will not find, find anywhere else a, a value than being pointed to Christ. There is no value in being pointed to yourself. And believers understand that. And that's what scriptures is all about. It points away from yourself towards Christ. It shows you you are helpless on your own. We recognize there's no value in reading a book about me or about you. If you find yourself really uninterested and bored of scriptures, then you need to ask God to help you. Ask God to help you through his spirit to see his glory and value Christ Jesus. This is exactly the way God works according to John 16, verse 14. Jesus says this of the Spirit, that he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. That's what Jesus says the Spirit is doing. He will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And therefore with David in Psalm 119, verse, one, verse 18, you should pray this way. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. What a great prayer to make. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. And then you should pray with Moses in Exodus thirty-three eighteen. Please show me your glory. Lord, I want to see your glory. Then, after that, after you've prayed these things, then open up scriptures and read. For that's where you'll see his glory. And you won't see it anywhere else. Is there anything more valuable, believer, than beholding the glory of Christ? Is there anything more precious than seeing our Savior in all his glory and all his splendor? To see him exalted, high and lifted up, reigning in power, victorious over every enemy that stood against you for your good and for his glory? Is there anything better and more precious and valuable than that? Well, there isn't. If this is the case, 
then I want you to consider something. Think about how rich you are today because of the great and glorious witness of the Son that has been left for you. Look at how the Father has left us with such a great deposit that is pointing towards Him. We are rich beyond our comprehension. And the poorest people of this world who have Christ are rich beyond comprehension. And the richest in the world have no more riches than those who are the poorest who have Christ. We are rich today because we have Christ and we have all these witnesses bearing witness to him. I want to encourage you to make full use of the witness that the Father has left to us. Don't take for granted the fact that you have such a great deposit. May this week be a week where we treasure and dig deeply into what we love to look at supremely, who is Christ. I also want to challenge you for your joy to make sure that you are using all these witnesses properly for their intended purpose is to point you to Christ. Are you daily seeing more fully the greatness of the treasure that you have in Christ? If not, there's something wrong with the way you're doing things. Either you're not looking at God's word or you're looking at it the wrong way. Look at Christ because that is where they are all pointing. And all you're doing, don't miss this. Don't miss Christ. And remember, pray that God would enable you to see his glory because he loves to answer such a prayer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we just want to thank you this morning for leaving us your word that magnifies and proclaims Christ to us. Lord, there is nothing else to look at. Everything else is worthless. Everything else is dying and decaying and falling apart. But Lord, your word is life. Christ is life to us. And God, you have shown us your glory through your word. And we are hungry and thirsty for more. We don't want more than your word. It is sufficient, but we want to see you more clearly in your word. And so I pray, Lord, I pray that you would give us sight to behold your glory Lord, help us to behold the wondrous, glorious excellence of who you are in your word. We know that every moment is a battle to treasure you above the things of this world. When we wake up in the morning, the world is, is crying out to us to treasure and love the things of this world more than you. They are arguing with us and proclaiming to us that there is a greater treasure but Lord, we know better. 
And God, I pray that you'd help us this week to continually keep our eyes on you, Jesus. Help us to see you in all your glory and all your greatness. And Lord, may we bear witness to your name. May we speak the truth of who you are to the world. The world has no idea that they are dying and that they are lost. I pray that we would show them that there is a Savior who is Christ the Lord and he can deliver them and bring them safely into your kingdom. And I pray that you give us boldness and courage. And I pray that you give us great joy. Increase our hope. Increase the assurance of our hope in our hearts. And may we live with joy that we have a God who is, who is sufficient for all our needs and who is glorious and mighty to save. In Jesus' name, amen.